Welcome to Sustainable Sessions, hosted by yours truly, Lucas and Lauren. Episode 19, featuring Juan Moreno Cruz. My name is Juan Moreno Cruz. I am an associate professor in SEED at the University of Waterloo, and I'm the Canada Research Chair in Energy Transition. I am from Colombia. Uh, I was born there, lived there, and did my undergrad and master's in Colombia in electrical engineering. Then I moved to Calgary uh, with my advisor, David Keith, uh, to do a PhD there. It was going to be a PhD on um, applied um, non-policy. And then I switched to economics. I took microeconomics and I loved it. And then I switched and got my PhD in economics. Then I moved to Atlanta for eight years. And then I came back here to work at Waterloo as an associate professor. And I'm also the Canada Research Chair in Energy Transition. So that is what my research is. My research tries to deal with um, um, a, understanding the climate problem um, from, a, I want to say, like a global perspective. Mm-hmm. So I, I see the climate challenge not as individual action, but as a collective action issue. Um, and then once you learn a lot about the about the science of climate uh, change a what i came to realize is that we have baked so much stuff already in the atmosphere it was already so hot and there is very little we can do about that so what do you do when you have countries that still need to develop um, and for that they're going to prioritize the use of energy mm-hmm. cheap energy um, but you were facing this reality of climate change. So I started to think of technologies that are called uh, climate geoengineering, which is these ideas in which you could, for example, spread small particles in the stratosphere. So you reflect the sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can cool down the planet without the requirement that you do mitigation or reduce emissions. And I was like, oh, this is super good. And for, as a Colombian, my first question was this one, like, I, I know climate change is an issue, I know environmental problems are an issue, but also I know that that is not what I want to prioritize when I'm in a de- from a developing country. Mm-hmm. So this sounded great as it turns out, these technologies are very risky and of course we, we don't use them for a reason so far. Um, and, but that was, that was the, the beginning of my research story was, um, how do I deal with the reality of having to bring people out of poverty while at the same time we have these real challenges? Um, so I have dealt with that uh, in my research, either by looking at these novel technologies and the implications and the, and the polit- geopolitical implications of them. Um, but I'm also looking at adaptation and what happens when you just need to make a choice and um, the climate is warming, the planet is warming, and we see impacts in the developing world. So how do you deal with it? Because our decisions to adapt, and as much as our decisions to reduce emissions have, have implications for, for our poorest population. Um, and I think um, what is not uh, shared, although I think uh, it should be the case, but uh, 
is that uh, the best way to deal with climate change is to bring people out of poverty. If we worry about the poorest, the more disadvantaged, and we, we make them of the capabilities or at least open the options for them to actually uh, develop, then we're making the climate change problem a little bit more manageable for them. And until they have a climate change problem that is manageable, then we will have an actual solution for climate change. We cannot have solutions for climate change that rely on, on the rich uh, doing less of what they do. We need poor people doing, um, or poor countries more because of policy decision, poor countries making decisions that empower them, that enrich them, and eventually that leads to decisions that are better for the environment as much as the other thing. Uh, so that is kind of the focus of my research. Um, the, pro the issue of energy transitions, then it becomes an issue of justice. Mm -hmm. So how do I, uh, how do we create uh, policies and technologies that allow for an energy transition that is not only for the wealthy, an energy transition that not only benefits a few, but an energy transition that actually brings everybody along with us. So that includes uh, a financing, for example, which countries could finance projects in developing countries, not telling them what to do, not how to do it necessarily. Just, hey, you need to grow. If you grow using fossil fuel technologies, that's gonna be bad for everybody. So why don't we share on that cost that you cannot really rely on, uh, have the finances to do right now. I have to be very careful when I say this, not to look, sound paternalistic, because it's not that we in the developing country or our research is better than a research in, made by a Colombian in Colombia. There is no difference. Um, but in, there is a reality that more resources are in the developing, in the developed world. And, and that uh, reallocation of resources is, is really important moving forward. Great. Yeah, long, I think. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a very interesting topic. And like, I like your background, especially like coming from like an economic perspective too. Um, you really do see it from a global sense and like your whole points about getting people out of poverty and how that's going to impact from a climate perspective. Um, it, it'll be very good to challenge you a little bit on that too, because like that's something that I've grappled with as well Like that thought. I'm also not to say that people in developing nations are going to excel to the point where they're on the same level of consumption as something like the U.S., but we also know if everyone consumed on the same level as an American, it would be very detrimental to climate change. So, like, it's it's also it, getting them out of poverty, but, like, really uh, getting them uplifted with a strong foundation so that they don't end up with patterns that are going to be catastrophic for um, for the world, like going forward too. So it's it's an interesting topic. Like definitely, I, I love to learn. I, I think I think that is that is a good point, and it's a point that comes out often. And mm -hmm. it is um, look if if the majority of poor people um, consumes like let's say the U.S., we don't have a future. And that could or could not be true. Like in mm -hmm. reality, is that we really don't know. Maybe we can all live together. We are nine billion people living like billionaires. <laughs> but of course, that's almost not. Yeah, exactly. We should be like that. <laughs> uh, but then the question becomes very close to, or is an ethical question. Why mm -hmm. are they the ones sacrificing growth? Why cannot they consume at the same level as 
an American is consuming, a North American is consuming. Uh, why? Just because they came later, mm -hmm. they didn't create the problem. Mm -hmm. So, so the question again is, is not consume less, maybe consume differently, maybe consume less, but that is not on us to decide. Right. If you want to have a say on how the future of uh, 1 billion people in Sub-Saharan Africa it develops, what the future looks like, provide financing and get out, provide mm -hmm. expertise that is seriously a, a trying to benefit them, not because we have a climate change problem. No, the outcome will be the same. Like if you go and you provide them with a technology that is clean, that is the latest, that uh, matches their human capital and, and their culture, and you're really interested on that, they're gonna grow, they're gonna consume in whichever way must benefit them. Uh, but the outcome is gonna be very similar if you come, say, and say, and you come in and say like, oh no, actually we have too much pollution, you cannot grow. Mm -hmm. You can have the same amount of emissions, reduce as much as you as we can by 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 allowing or um, enhancing the capacities that they have to grow to prosper and I think um, because we live in a highly socialized world mm -hmm. a sorry globalized world um, the technology that they use will be much ahead of the technology that the US used to develop or Canada used to develop. The technology is already much better. So, so I think is how, how do we get them? How do we get those people to actually grow and consume and, and prosper in a way that actually is, I, in this part in which we're agreeing, by the way, is yeah. it cannot be the same. Mm -mm. Yeah. No. It cannot be the same, but, but the difference is a different perspective It's like, we don't get to tell them that it cannot be the same. They have to choose what is best for them. Mm -hmm. And if we don't want them to, choose, to make the same choices, then it is up to us to create the space. Exactly. Now, we didn't have it. I mean, I'm Colombian, so, but from a Canadian perspective, mm -hmm. we didn't have these technologies. We grew with the technology that was the best at the time and we copy and install from the UK and all this stuff just to, to grow. Um, so they need the same. So the question is like, which technology are they going to take? Yeah. And, and, and I think that the reality is that, uh, it is a challenge. So I get this, yeah. but I, I just don't think about it because I know it is, a, it is difficult, but it, I think I put a lot more weight into them prospering as individuals and as nations. Mm -hmm. Um, and then hoping that the outcome is great more than imposing the outcome on that. Mm -hmm. For sure. I know you want to go ahead. You, you can go no, I was just going to say, I, I totally agree. And I think a good analogy technology that you could use as a comparison would be something like the internet. So when we developed, we had to go through the hard steps of like broadband connection to get to Wi-Fi, whereas them, they're basically jumping right to Wi-Fi without having to go through using the same tools that we did during our development. Mm -hmm be going through now so they can kind of just sidestep a lot of that and get to good technology off the gate and then exactly like you said we, we won't know what their patterns are like but that's irrelevant at the point it's just like mm -hmm. how can we allow them to develop quickly and get to a point where 
we know that as everyone develops, it'll it'll be better for the climate. So it's just mm-hmm. like what like we want to be involved in the process as they grow, um, rather than not be involved at all. And then they- yeah, that's that's the main thing. That's yeah. the main thing. And now our involvement has to be very respectful of their culture and mm-hmm. and, and their traditions and and their wants and needs that are very different to what we think they are. That has been the history of the West trying to solve problems for everybody else is that we solve problems they don't have or we create problems that they didn't need it. Mm-hmm. So it, it's so difficult because um, because we want to do something, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but I think we need to, to take a step back usually and say, okay, what it is what you need and what is the way in which you want us to to contribute. And to you wanted to say something, Lauren? Yeah, no, I was actually months. just going to give an example, and I'm not sure if you've heard of Lambton College, but um, they pretty much won Worlds for Enactus, and what their project was, I believe it's called Project One Seed. They actually went to Zambia, and they helped the farmers there how to no-till farm to pretty much increase their yields. The, the problem that they had was food insecurity, um, so they wanted to increase their yield by like X amount of percentage, and then now all of these people are out of food insecurity because they were able to um, like increase the, the food um, yield. But the, the, the thing that was really interesting was that how collaborative, like you said, like having that cultural, really understanding like what their problems mm-hmm. were, how they operate and how to make things kind of like easily flow into their systems. And then they pretty much developed this um, trainer to trainer program where they would That's teach cool. trainers to, and now they're pretty much like almost out of, not out of poverty, but like a lot of their big problems big have improvements been huge improvements huge, like, yeah there is something there is something really big with that when you when your basic needs are satisfied and your basic needs change with time actually right? but in principle there is something that is super urgent for you feeding mm-hmm. your family for example when that is satisfied it's not just like it's not a check mark is mm-hmm. there is a sense of hope that allows them to think beyond the next day or beyond the next month um I know it happened to me personally, once you start to get uh, it's enough income security, mm-hmm. you start to make decisions that you couldn't before because you were just surviving. So that changes everything. But, but it also links to, to technology in the way that Lucas was bringing it on, for example, wireless. Mm-hmm. You know, um, wireless is a way in which we're gonna start to diffuse ownership of things. Uber is an example though. I don't like it as a technology, as a firm, but this idea that you don't have to own a car mm-hmm. to access the service of driving, or you don't need to, it's going to be like this a lot, this idea of, uh, I think in marketing it's called prosumer, which is this producers and consumers mix. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you produce service, sometimes you consume the service, but it all relies on connectivity. So wireless makes a big difference there. And if you combine wireless with a society that is um, interested culturally or traditionally to be connected, now you have a technology that matches the place. Yeah. And, and that combination of technology and place and culture, I think is what starts to click in. And so, yeah, you had this idea in the, the US, let's, let's switch it, suppose that um, you wanted to go from New Orleans to, to Atlanta or whatever in the US. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't because there was no railroad or you couldn't. Um, 
once you reduce this cost, technology allows that. Now you're connecting cities, you're connecting people, and, and people really is the backbone of everything. The innovation comes from people, ideas come from people. The solution to all the sustainability problems we have right now, they don't come from nowhere, they don't come from companies, they come from people, they come from people within those companies, but they also come from people working on their garage and people working in their classroom and people working like you and like a startup even before graduating. That sort of stuff is what technology allows to, to share and to connect. And I think once we live in a world in which is more connected like we are right now, both locally through technologies like cell phone, but also globally because now communicating across the world is super easy, Zoom or, but even transportation, like you have the cost of moving things around the planet has fallen like crazy. So, that allows us to actually connect, build more, produce more. And the hope is that in my research at least is that if you give this the right incentives, mm -hmm. then you're producing better, you're producing cleaner, you're consuming better, you're consuming cleaner. Uh, but the sacrifice that we usually put in the sustainability community and others is not necessarily what we need to do. No, we don't need to sacrifice to consume better or mm -hmm. to live better. We just need to do it. We need to think differently about what it is that we consume, what it is, how we consume it. Mm -hmm. If instead of every one of us owning a car, we just share one among 10 people because we have the technology to do so, that's, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. So it's that sort of thinking, I think, that goes a long way, especially when you want to convince people that are still in the process of developing that they can do something about it, that they, that the environment and the economy are not fighting with each other. They're just doing what they're supposed to do. And the technology, the institutions allow us to actually think about that better. Yeah. No, oh, that was uh, awesome. And, and I'm told, oh man, we can go down the rabbit hole of autonomous vehicles and that technology. Yeah, all that stuff. For example, autonomous vehicles and batteries, think of, think of those cars that when they're idle, they can go to a building and connect and they become like this power source for a building that may want a little bit extra power. Mm -hmm. And when they are not actually serving, then they're charging and then they go and drive around, but they're never idle. They're mm -hmm. always being used, mm -hmm. which is another issue. It's not that we consume more. That's what I'm thinking. Like we don't consume is that most of our stuff is never used. Yeah. Our cars are always parked in front. Our everything is just half years all the time. Half is will be great. Right? It changes like the nature of the asset itself. So like it, it just cars become tools for the broader economy than just being like it's like yeah. my own thing that only I can like take advantage of and use. And it, it just it really opens up like you said. Now if someone is a new immigrant, at some point they might need to buy a car. They need access to transportation. That cost of transportation for themselves to get to work to get access to stuff is just coming down year over year as technology yeah. improves. And like, um, no, it, and, and again, you think about this from a technology, from a network perspective. And when you see one technology through like a network, like what can I do? How can I reuse it? Can I not leave it idle? That, that increases the capacity of the economy automatically because you are not producing more. You're just using what you got. The <laughs> consumption and production don't, don't need to be one-to-one. -one. There is already a lot in the economy that we can be using that we have not used properly. Um, <laughs> Oh, and the idea is to create and, and the idea is to create the, the environment in the developing world on the countries that are in the process of developing that that and the incentive the institutions that understand that that you don't need to have a car 
Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you, you can create public transportation and a shared economy that actually allows you to do a lot of this. It's not gonna be a full replacement. People are gonna want to have their own things and, and you have to respect that. But there are alternatives that, that, like you said, you can jump all the steps we did until we got to a shared car driving service. They can start there. Yeah. Um, One thing that I wanted to ask you too, I, I guess, how to get, how do we get these like individuals on board? Just to gain the mindset that you have on it. Like, I think we're on the same page in how we understand the relationship between technology and growth, where I think a lot of people don't see the connection there. And sometimes people will look at technology or and just corporations and just be like, just, just large corporations that are just like, they have a negative outlook. Like you're trying to do too much for the, like, they're not seeing the same level of perspective that you're having, where you recognize that technology will have this incredible impact on to allow developing nations to pull out of poverty, but also the impact that will have on climate change will be incredible as well. Mm -hmm. I think I, I think the issue is to not think of them as not making the right choices. I think everybody's making the right choices thinking from their perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think um, more than convincing them, the first step is usually understand where they're coming from. Right. Um, so for example, one of my PhD students, Laura Blanco, she's um, a Colombian. She's actually still in Colombia and she's working on uh, sustainable diets. Mm -hmm. And one of the things she's found in her own work this, in, before she was my student um, is, um, is that many people make choices thinking of their grandmothers. You know, like when they wanna eat something, they want something that is comfortable, something that feels like home. Mm -hmm. and and even when you challenge them and say what it is the the sustainable plate like the sustainable diet they will know that and they want to behave like that but still there is this pull mm -hmm. that comes from culture from history from family so if you go to them and you say like oh you're consuming wrong you lost them mm -hmm. because you're you're asking them to to completely split from their from their family history so understand how they behave and you start and the reason why they behave the way they do and see if there is room within that for mm -hmm. them to start to to incorporate other things that are not necessarily losing their their past or or their connection with their uh, with their ancestors um but but that actually enhances that no, like that's how we evolve as culturally and as humans and people is by bringing new ideas into what was before. But but it's very seldom that we actually innovate by abandoning everything. Mm -hmm. so we actually just combine. Uh, so I think I think we, we need to understand that before we ask the question of like how do we convince them. Think of the same with corporations. Mm -hmm. Uh, the corporation is not, it's not cultural, the corporation is a legal system. It's a, it's a, um, for example, firms need to invest or the CEOs and all these people, they need to invest with the objective of maximizing shareholder positions. It's mm -hmm. not, it's not like I want to make money. It's what they have to do legally. What They're they legally liable. Do. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the vicarious. So that becomes a problem. So what do you tell them is, well, you have to show them that it's an equal case for alternative clean uh, investments, which right now is easier to actually to make that case. Mm -hmm. Or you need to show them that somehow, some other way, they're getting their return. Mm -hmm. Maybe because 
uh, their brand name improves or whatever. But it, I guess my point is convincing each person is, is a challenge by itself. Mm-hmm. Each agent on the other side that you want to bring on board, you have to treat it as if it is um, a unique case because most of the time it is. There are, good, there are things that we can do generally. Uh, so for example, if we go and we see somebody that is on the ballot and they are have sustainability goals in mind. So you go and fight and you get them elected as much and as often as possible. And that is, I think, the most effective way to create change is to actually get people that are willing to do uh, hard, to make hard sustainability choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, you put them in the government and, and that's hard, but it's the most effective way to do it because policy actually drives a lot. And, and politicians don't need to think about each of us independently. No? Mm-hmm. And hopefully they're just thinking about all of us and what is the best for all of us. And of course, we know there are deviations about that from that, but, uh, but still in principle, we, got, we get good people in government that gets a lot of things on. For us individually, I think we need to stop worrying too much about how do we get everybody on board? We need, I think what we can do is how we get, how we understand everybody else's position, mm-hmm. how not to change it, just to understand it. And then how do we uh, present to them a case for whatever it is that we think is a good option moving forward. So is, so I'm very reluctant to actually say, hey, this is the trick to get people to listen mm-hmm. because I've been doing this for a while and I keep saying the same and there is, I mean, my students always are like, yeah, and that's my big hope is that my students actually go on and actually enact some of the ideas that I shared. But, uh, but I'm not trying to convince people anymore. I think, I think you try to understand, you're trying to, because when you understand other people's positions, then you refine your own. Maybe you, you create a better, um, a way to, co- to not to convince, to share your ideas that might bring other people over. But I think the, the idea that it is our responsibility to deal with this whole thing is, is so overwhelming, especially for young people like you. Like, it's climate change, this is a big deal and we have to do something, but understand that it's not you, mm-hmm. yourself. It's you electing good people, you pushing for change in, but because not because it is your responsibility, it's because you want to make others that are responsible. You want to make them uncomfortable. That's your position. Your position is to make like you have power, either because you have money, either because you are an elected official or whatever. And you make them uncomfortable and you make them listen to you. That is not shifting blame away from you. It's because you wouldn't you were never in blame. You know, like you didn't cause any of this. Mm-hmm. So, but it is still your duty as a citizen to actually say, I'm entitled to, uh, to being protected, I'm entitled for the environment, I'm entitled to clean water. The thing that is going on in Ontario with the watershed and all these conserv- uh, conservation authorities being like dismantled and defunded, um, well, it's not exactly that, but it's the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a real issue and you need to go out there and fight it. Um, because that is your responsibility is not to clean water. That's the responsibility of those people that you elected. 
So anyways, I forgot where I was going, but the point is this. <laughs> you, I, I don't answer or I don't think of how do I convince people. I think of how about a particular sustainability approach. I think how do I convince people to become active participants on, on the, of the political uh, spectrum? Like how do you become evolved, get them to vote? Um, and hopefully when you convince them, they, they carry with them your same ideals. Maybe it's not even that the case. Maybe you're pushing somebody else that doesn't care about sustainability go to the ballot. That's great too. Whatever it is, I think that is where we need to start. Um, but the other thing that I will say is engage with everybody else with respect, even if somebody that you, and this is getting preachy and I don't wanna do this, but, but, but I think um, we, in, especially right now, and maybe it's because we have been in isolation for so long and all this stuff, but I, I think people are not tolerant to other positions. And, and that is the part because we all want to win or we all want to convince or we'll just understand then if you, if you leave any conversation, having understood the other person better, I think we're all winning. Mm -hmm. And what we do with that is, yo, like what, what do you do with that information? It's not them, it's not what do they do with more in, the information that I provided them. So what do you do with what you gain? Um, anyways. Let me stop there because I can go on and on as, I, as any professor will do. So tell me. <laughs> no, that, that yeah. was awesome. I think that was a really good way to look at it. And I totally agree, especially with like the polarization that we're experiencing right now. I think COVID mm -hmm. is definitely a factor in that as well too, but it, it always does seem like it's a win or lose argument. Like you're with us or you're against us. And oftentimes it is, when you look at it on a case by case level, it's so nuanced. And so I think have, applying empathy and trying to understand people's positions just it gives you more of the tools to then like you said get involved and be an active participant so i, I like think that. another thing too is like some people the the whole theme of ignorance it's i think you should take the time to do research on certain topics so that you're more educated and if you are having these discussions really truly understanding all sides of the arguments and then you can form your own opinion based on that as well yeah i think if i could ask you as well to kind of a segue off that is like for people that are interested, like I'm sure all of your students are very engaged and obviously us and our audience that are gonna be listening, what tools and resources do you tend to, whether it's gain information, uh, news, or just updates on the topic of, I'll even go as broad to like climate change, but also kind of like the green economy and, and that full perspective. Because mm -hmm. I think it's something where a lot of people wanna learn about climate change, that's awesome. And I encourage them, but beyond that, a lot of people also wanna understand the economic implications. So when they speak to people mm -hmm. that are less inclined to just talk about climate change, they, they have arguments that, like you said, you present it in a way where it's like to a shareholder, yeah, you can still make returns in this space or like mm -hmm. we could we can find a, a balance there. Um, so what kind of resources do you tend to use and you kind of recommend uh, for people that are listening? Let me give you two names mm -hmm. from, from my school. One is, not because they're the only ones, um, but, um, but because they're the ones dealing with this specific. So Olaf Weber uh, is a professor, uh, works on um, climate finance. And he has a really good work on how to think about divestment, how to think about this question of like, hey, how do you bring a, a business model to, some, to a company that has not thought about this? Um, so he has a lot of work on that. It's, is, is not necessarily advocating his research, but he also has a, a lot of work 
or engagement that he does on that area. And on sustainability, broadly, there is a new professor also in my same school in SEED, um, came last year. His name is Cameron McCormick. And, um, and he works on everything, sustainability, how to connect the sustainability goals to, to decisions and behavior. Um, there are many others. I, I, I think the best way to learn about this is really going through knocking on people's office doors. And if once we can do that, once we get to do that again, I think if you stop by the by, by our school, this um, the the place I would this is the uh, seed um, is pretty much a green business school. So there are a lot of people that are thinking exactly of these questions. How do we get business and communities to engage in a more sustainable economy? And it comes from very different ways. So it's, it's almost looks as an advertisement, but, but I think there are really great people there. Uh, and I think everybody or anyone that is actually remotely interested on this question are gonna find super interesting people to work and to talk to when you visit us. More than me, I'm the least <laughs> business person you will see in that place. Uh, but uh, but everybody's just great. So I, I think knowing people, talking to people. I think I really agree with that too, and sentiment about like engaging in discussion, speaking with people that are maybe it's someone that's their first time at the event or someone who's been really deep that already in, entrenched in sustainability for several years that you're speaking to them. But a lot of great ideas come from conversation beyond just reading, and there's always new nuance and things that are involved in those discussions. So I think beyond that as well, like going to events, those are really great opportunities to network and learn more. Yeah. And hopefully yeah. in the future soon, we'll be able to connect once again until yeah. we meet again with COVID. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm looking forward to that. That injection cannot come fast <laughs> enough. Um, um, sorry, just to kind of like wrap things up here. Um, what we like to do at the end of our episode is have whoever our guest is share like one really cool, like either fact or like key takeaway that you want to leave with the listeners that you think would either like inspire them to have like their own individual action or kind of push them in a direction, like you said, to think about um, these topics on like a deeper level. So whatever you want to share. Uh, like a quote, a stat, a story, like literally whatever is up to you. Yeah. So that is a really good end question uh, that is very hard to to answer and to pick one thing. But because I want people to engage with the idea of lifting people out of poverty and what is our ethical and moral responsibility with them. One of the things that strikes me the most is that um, from all the 30 some countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, almost 1 billion people, they have emitted less than a little over half of a percent of uh, greenhouse gases. Wow. Less than half percent comes from 1 billion people living there. And I think that is something we need to keep in mind when we think of solutions, when we think about the challenge, and we think about how to bring solutions to deal with that challenge. Because it's, uh, it is clearly not the responsibility. Mm -hmm. no? So that half percent of co2 emissions cumulative co2 emissions coming from one billion people i think that's the stat that i carry with me 
that's that's yeah that it makes you think for sure just like on it really puts things in perspective like what do we really need to live and survive and thrive and how can we get it either kind of equal to everyone um in terms of like what their cultural perspectives and um, things are as well that's exactly right how to get it all equal we can do it either by bringing us all down or them or by lifting everybody up and i think we all want to lift everybody up thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast If you would like to learn more, visit us at www.last20.ca. Until next time, stay sustainable.